You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Jane Olmeyer, and I'm absolutely uh, delighted to welcome you here this evening to Trinity for this, our second Behind the Headlines discussion of the autumn around the topic of freedom of speech where journalism and law collide. Uh, my name is Jane Olmeyer. I'm the director of the Trinity Longroom Hub, which is our Institute of Advanced Studies in the Arts and Humanities. Normally, we're in that lovely building just opposite the Long Room, uh, uh, but uh, given the numbers tonight, uh, we're, we're in here. So this event is part of our Behind the Headlines discussion series, which uh, sees on an annual basis, uh, uh, allows us to uh, uh, focus on many topics that are being debated in the media or indeed topics that are uh, prevalent to the times we're living in. For those of you who are new to uh, Behind the Headlines, uh, through this forum, what we seek to do is to draw on the long-term perspectives of the arts and humanities while adopting an interdisciplinary approach uh, and to provide a space for respectful uh, public discourse which embraces uh, nuance and combats simplification. Last year we dealt with many contentious topics, uh, abortion, uh, President Donald Trump, uh, Brexit uh, and Syria. And our most recent uh, uh, behind the headlines was our digital world looking at artificial intelligence. Tonight's event is a really uh, a special one for us because we've teamed up with Columbia University in New York and in particular the Heyman Centre for the Humanities as part of a joint symposium entitled Fears, Factions and Fake News. Uh, that's actually... Tonight is the opening uh, event, uh, uh, but that event is t- uh, the main symposium is taking place uh, tomorrow. Um, and then we've got two events in New York on uh, uh, Thursday and on Friday. I'd love to invite you all to New York as well. Uh, now, if you can't make uh, uh, New York, do come to the symposium uh, tomorrow. Uh, you do need to register, though, but it's free. Uh, again, open to the public. Uh, uh, do join us. Uh, and uh, I also just want to take this opportunity to really warmly welcome uh, colleagues uh, from New York, from the University of Columbia, who are joining us here this evening. Obviously, Todd Gitlin, I'll introduce in a moment, but also uh, Eileen Galuli and Joey Slaughter, who uh, you'll get a chance to meet uh, tomorrow. So I want to introduce each of our four speakers now, uh, briefly. Um, uh, First up tonight will be uh, Fanon Sheehan, who's no stranger to libel laws uh, as the editor of Ireland's best-selling newspaper, um, The Independent, if uh, you don't know that already. Uh, before his appointment to uh, the editor's chair four years ago, he was uh, the group <coughs> political editor uh, at Independent uh, News and Media. Uh, from Tipperary, he started his journalistic career working for the Irish Examiner and still makes regular appearances on uh, RTE. 
Uh, Fanon will be providing us with a sort of frontline uh, uh, perspective on defamation law in Ireland uh, for journalists and newspapers and the knock-on effect this has for the freedom of speech and democracy. Our next speaker is Andrea Martin. She's a graduate uh, of Trinity and is an experienced solicitor who has practised uh, 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 exclusively in media law since 1998 and is recognised internationally for her expertise in the area. Uh, her experience in the media industry and in the provision of social media and data uh, uh, protection uh, auditing services make her best place to address many of the issues in tonight's discussion. And this evening, Andrea will be looking at how defamation law in Ireland allows for a high level of claimant opportunism. Uh, she'll also look at the parallel universe at work when it comes to defamation online. Please join us. Thank you. Our third speaker is Dr Owen O'Dell from Trinity School of Law, where he's an Associate Professor of Law, uh, Owen researches and publishes primarily in the fields of freedom of expression and private and commercial law, and especially where they overlap in uh, uh, IP, uh, intellectual uh, property, uh, uh, IT and cyber law. He was a member of the group which advised the Department of Justice uh, on the Defamation Act in 2009. He's also a member of the Government Data Forum. Tonight, Owen will look at some of the challenges uh, to freedom of speech in the 21st century, including the prospects for reform in Ireland's uh, defamation laws. Last but not least, we're delighted to be joined by Professor Todd Gitlin from Columbia's uh, Journalism School. Uh, Todd is the author of 16 books, uh, including uh, the Media Unlimited, and more recently, The Whole World is Watching, Mass Media in the Making and Unmaking of the New Left. He's a regular contributor to the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, among others. Todd will be looking at the devastation of public journalism and viable models for public support going forward, and I think particularly looking at Facebook. Uh, we're really looking forward to a lively discussion. There'll be plenty of opportunity uh, for questions following uh, our panellists' contributions. And tonight's format is just the same uh, for any of our Behind the Headlines. Each speaker will have nine minutes to address the topic, uh, after which we'll open it uh, uh, to the floor. So at this point, I'd like you to turn your mobile phones to silent. Please, no ringing mobile phones tonight. Um, but for those of you who want to share uh, your views uh, of the discussion, obviously you can join the conversation on Twitter uh, using the hashtag uh, Hub Matters and by tagging at Trinity Longrim Hub, T-L-R-H, uh, T-L-R Hub. We podcast uh, 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 the, the presentations, so uh, if you would like to listen to them again, or you'd like to share them with somebody who's not here, we endeavour to get the podcast uh, uh, up tonight or tomorrow uh, morning. So really, without uh, further ado, uh, join me, please, in welcoming our first uh, speaker uh, uh, tonight, uh, uh, Fanon Sheeran. Fanon.
I got immediately worried when I heard Jane introduce me as no strangers to libel laws. I feared, oh God, I'm only out of the office a half an hour and there's already another one dropped. That's the way I can feel sometimes. We're a week on from Halloween, but I bring to you tales from the front line of defamation. No, no less a horror story to my mind in its own right. Uh, George Washington once said, If freedom of speech is taken away, then dumb and silent we may be led, like sheep to the slaughter. Now, little did the first President of the United States realise that his successor, number 45, would be the man operating the slaughterhouse. But nonetheless, <laughs> there is something to be said about his words at that time. Journalism, to my mind and to all, everybody else, I think, who operates in that profession, uh, believes it is supposed to hold the powerful to account and is fundamental to the proper, transparent functioning of democracy. Defamation laws a stymie, fearless, investigative journalism and promote self-censorship are not serving the public interest. And yet increasingly, as an editor, I'm wondering whether my role is just that, of a self-censor rather than an editor. Because every night I'm trying to strike that balance, which other more eminent speakers will, will, will talk about, uh, about that unreasonable restriction on public interest and freedom of expression with the right to a good name. There's a delicate balancing act for, for the journalists, for newspapers and courts when that's at play. Yet every night I sit with a lawyer three feet away from me going through even the most innocuous of stories looking for the slightest lacunae, a photo caption, a jigsaw identification, a word in the headline. It's not the stories that, that you really want to be uh, dominating your time, the one that's accusing a cabinet minister uh, of of corruption or of some malpractice that actually end up dominating most of your time in this regard. It's, it's the little things that really do catch you out. I have to make a judgment call on a piece of copy that's deemed to be legally sound or on whether it is worth the risk. Now, every journalist in the country will tell you there was always that story that they had who would have made their career the one that got away. If only they had got that extra call, if only they had got that extra little bit of detail back my problem is now at the moment, journalists are coming to me with perfectly good stories, and I cannot print them because the risk is, is too great. Just in recent weeks, I've had to hold back on stories of genuine public interest, on slum landlords, uh, on sexual harassment, uh, and on internal company machinations. And that's just in the last couple of weeks, simply because that is what I regard as the chilling effect in action. The risk was just too great. The substantial level of awards and defamation cases is impacting on democratic discourse in Ireland, and given the costs involved, many newspapers simply won't take that risk of publishing that article, no matter how certain they are. That's the position I find myself in on a daily basis. With good reason, one would have to say, since 2010, defamation actions have cost the main newspapers in this country in excess of €30 million. Euros. Awards made in Ireland are wholly out of kilter with other jurisdictions, including the UK, where effectively there is a cap of €305,000 exists. Now, euro, euro to sterling, I decided to convert to euro because we don't know what the sterling will be at the end of each day, so bear with me in that regard. The reality is that awards rarely exceed 110,000, a fraction of the, of the levels awarded in Ireland. To my mind, our defamation regime is arguably the most stringent in Europe, and that's a stain on our international reputation and damaging our human rights credentials. An oppressive defamation regime that seeks to continue to impose unsustainable damages on media organisations is undermining journalists in their essential democratic duty to hold to account those in positions of power and influence. And I'll return to that point. The current review of the Defamation Act 2009, which is, under, which is underway, to, in my opinion, must lead to the provision of adequate and effective safeguards against disproportionate awards and defamation actions. Although the Act allows judges to give more directions to juries on the assessment of damages, this has brought about only limited changes and libel awards that remain much higher in Ireland than elsewhere in Europe. 
Working in the confines of Ireland's draconian defamation regime is a maze-like occupational hazard for journalists, which is not matched in other countries across Europe. In Ireland, grossly effective defamation awards are a disproportionate financial burden at a time when the very viability of funding for public interest journalism is under considerable threat. Now, although I'm not a, a graduate... Again, Jane got a bit of a shock when she discovered that a UCC graduate was allowed to come in here today. <laughs> then we discovered there are two of us up here, on, up on the panel. It will be remiss of me, though, not to refer to an eminent academic of this fine institution uh, to reference one of the locals, as one would say. Professor Neville Cox, the Dean of Graduate Studies uh, here in Trinity College, and Owen McCullough, a leading senior counsel, in their detailed analysis of the Irish defamation law, defamation law and practice, I'm sure they'll be outside signing copies afterwards if anybody wants to get one. They suggest that vis-a-vis other major constitutional democracies, quote, the protection of free speech under the Irish Constitution is a comparatively weak one. They also point out that there have been many concerns expressed before enactment of the 2009 Act and quite possibly after it that the law was nonetheless overprotective of the plaintiff's right to a good name and underprotective of the defendant's right to free speech. Notable calls in this area have dated back 20, 30-odd years, uh, and there is a, a raft of uh, documents that, that seek reform in, in this area. It just hasn't happened to date. Until that unfair, anti-democratic and damaging under-protection of free speech is meaningfully addressed, Irish defamation law will continue to be unfit for purpose and will con- consider to, to generate considerable controversy. I'm in no way seeking to excuse any instances of poor journalism, full stop, That's all I have to say about that. If there are examples of articles that are found to be dishonest, inaccurate, or cause unnecessary distress or damage to the reputation of an an individual organisation, I am not defending them whatsoever. However, we cannot be deflected from our mission of keeping our readers and audiences informed and to provide fearless commentary in the public interest. In this regard, it's worth reflecting on the words on the nature of freedom by Leonard Hoffman, the British Lord Justice of Appeal, as cited by Mr Justice Niall Fenley in a recent Supreme Court judgment. Hoffman said, a freedom which is restricted to, that, to what judges think to be responsible or in, the interest, or in the public interest is no freedom. Freedom means the right to publish things which government and judges, however well motivated, think should not be published. Defamatory statements without justification, of course, require redress. This has to be done in a proportionate manner and in a way that does not fundamentally threaten the right to freedom of speech, the role of the press as a watchdog and the very viability of media organisations. Newsbrands Ireland, the representative body for newspapers in, in this country, has put forward its submission on the 2009 Defamation Act. Uh, what it is seeking, and supported by the rest of the newspaper industry, is the abolition of juries for defamation trials, a limitation on damages, clarity on liability for user-generated con- comment, and the introduction of a serious harm threshold. The jury process is seen by publishers as something akin to Russian roulette. It's also out of line with other civil law cases where juries are not used. It's a fundamental problem for our justice system and is also creating a chill effect. Cox and McCullough again state that the role of the jury in assessing damages renders such awards unpredictable and in particular means that awards in one case are not a reliable guide to the the probable award in the next. It does our justice system no credit that there is no effective scale for damage to a person's reputation in in comparison to partial injuries. Awards are also unpredictable which damages trust in the system. What is required, to my mind, is a maximum cap on the scale of damages awarded, and in particular, we must examine the defamation regimes in Austria and Malta, 
which currently provides statutory caps on non-pecuniary damages in defamation cases involving the media. Let me just address one point, and that is the level, the playing pitch is not level here. Social media and online hosting sites are effectively given carte blanche, while traditional legacy news publishers are punished for, for, for what people say in comments posted on their sites. This, again, is not helping to support indigenous public interest journalism. The playing field is already vastly uneven, and this is just exacerbating the situation. Revenues and budgets in the newspaper industries in most countries have fallen steeply in the last decade. This makes it a tougher task to, pr- to pr- produce quality journalism and ensure people are held to account. But yet, at the same time, the costs of litigation are prohibitive and are growing uh, exponentially. Our outdated defamation regime ties the hands of the press behind its back. This does not serve our democracy well. This is especially the case at a time when our very funding models are challenged. Ironically, while revenues have seen continual decline in recent years, in most cases, defamation costs have risen exponentially. Let me just put this question to you. The social media giants who have shown scant regard for taking responsibility for the content they circulate, they've shown scant regard for privacy, for bullying, for fake news, for contempt of court. Do you really want to hand over this democratic duty of holding people to account to their algorithms, or do you want to see it left in the hands of, a, of trusted professionals in this area? That's a, a question you're going to have to ask yourselves. Put my old political hat on for a moment. I do, I do think the game will change on defamation when we see the social media giants getting sued more widely. I think the, the influence yielded by the tech sector over government now is somewhat comparable to that of the Catholic Church in decades gone by, to be quite frank, where they have direct access right to the top of government and, and can ring the Taoiseach at the, at the drop of a hat, and their calls will be taken. Newspapers, executives, and academics urging ch- chains of defamation law is very nice, but a lot of ministers are clearly not taking it on board. When they get circuit in the call from the tech sector giants, then they will start paying attention. Let me just leave you with, with one point here. Michael Lee Higgins, our president, May of last year, his words on World Press Freedom Day. This year, 100 years since the momentous event of the 1916 Easter Rising, we are reminded of the importance of a free and democratic society and of the central role that journalism must play in the quest for a full and accountable democratic republic. Press freedom and the right to information have a direct relevance to achieving the vision of a true republic. They are central elements, too, in creating the kind of sustainable and equal societies we all aspire to for our future. Today, let us strengthen our resolve and defend the rights of a free press and let us celebrate the possibilities of quality journalism as we build an inclusive society to the benefit of all. And returning to the point where I started, President George Washington, in this country, ironically, those who seek to protect press freedom and freedom of speech are the ones who have been brought like sheep to the slaughter. Thank you. Um, because this is an area um, that's just so complex. There are so many aspects of public policy, political policy, um, legal policy involved that it's, it's, it's very easy for those of us who are involved in it to just want to talk so much about it. So what I'm going to try to do is present over the next um, uh, eight to nine minutes uh, just a very uh, quick 
um, summary of uh, the, the, the principles of defamation law in Ireland. Um, defamation law in Ireland, both in theory and in practice, and the implications of that theory and practice for the protection of freedom of expression. Are, um, is that a junior member? <laughs> um, uh, the the uh, defamation law, it starts hundreds of years back in our common law, our judge-made law system, but let's take 1930, our 1937 constitution as a starting point. There are specific provisions in our 1937 constitution that protect, on the one hand, the right to freely express convictions and opinions, which has been held by our Supreme Court to include the right to communicate the uh, facts on which those convictions and opinions are uh, formed, i.e. the right to freedom of expression, and Article 40.3, which uh, ensures the right for every citizen to, uh, that the law should protect and vindicate their good name. So defamation law is, as we know, concerned with finding that very finely tuned balance between the interests of society in the exercise of freedom of expression and the right of individuals to uh, protection and vindication of their good name. Uh, What's defamation? The publication of a statement that tends to injure a person's reputation in the eyes of reasonable members of society. Show me a reasonable member of society. Everybody's idea is different. But that's the theory behind having juries uh, decide if a statement is defamatory, and if so, how much should be paid in compensation, defamation actions in the High Court. And Fiona has uh, already referenced the unpredictability of juries and the implication uh, of jury trials and the implications of this for uh, restricting freedom of expression. But the theory is that any citizen who believes they've been defamed can use this avenue of recourse and that the law finds the appropriate balance between the protection of democracy through the exercise of freedom of expression and the necessary accountability of our politicians, public officials, business leaders and cultural icons and the right of every individual, regardless of their rank or social position, to have their good name protected. What's important to understand is that exactly the same laws apply online and offline, though, as we have seen, what's going on online is completely different from what's going on offline. Now, how does this apply in practice? I believe that our defamation laws are restrictive uh, and are not supporting uh, freedom of expression as best they could, um, and that we're in the middle of what could be described as a perfect storm. <coughs> the perfect storms are, one, restrictions contained in our actual laws, most recently our Defamation Act 2013, which did in some ways seek to open up defamation law and remove some of those restrictions. Uh, two, the fact that we have a small number of litigants who are very well healed. Uh, three, that we have a small uh, population and accordingly a very pressurised commercial marketplace for commercial outlets, uh, sorry, for media outlets, who are therefore falling over each other, trying to get the scoop, trying to claim their market share. Um, and it does lead to a very, very pressurised market and not much money available um, for to, to dedicate resources to long-term investigative journalism and also, finally, limited precedent case law. So let's have a look at this. From the point of view of someone who's been defamed, I think I've been defamed. First of all, I employ a solicitor. This is the kind of case you're looking at about €1,500 Euro plus VAT to get started. If the media outlet decides to defend the case, believing you haven't been defamed, or indeed, and I would have been involved in such tactics myself, testing your mettle to see how far you're going to push your case, um, unless you're very wealthy, you need to be prepared to put your house on the line in order to get the vindication you seek. Like horse racing, defamation litigation is a rich person's game. From the point of view of the media outlet, there may have been a genuine mistake, the wrong photograph used, a piece of information believed to be true but being slightly inaccurate, an essential detail being left out in the rush to meet daily print or broadcast deadlines. 
And what, and what with the unpredictability of juries, the massive expense involved in, in defending defamation actions, the likelihood is that a media outlet, even if they believe they have um, a good defence, finds themselves in a situation where the commercial risks of defending a case overwhelmingly outweigh the costs of defending their own journalism. You pay up, get out early and cut your losses simply to stay in business. One big claim, particularly for a regional radio station or newspaper, is enough to sink them. Um, defamation litigation is a rich company's game. Insurance costs are huge and the amount you need to pay is excess before the excess policy upon the policy kicks in could be tens of thousands, which for a small media uh, organisation could be enough to put sin, uh, sink them. So money and access to funding to conduct defamation litigation is the first major barrier to finding a realistic and comprehensive balance between freedom of expression and protection of reputation. Let's look then at the actual mechanics of the law. The defence is available. Most important pub and most widely relied on defences are proving the truth. Truth means that it says in the can, you prove the truth of what was said. Um, there's also the right to uh, honest opinion, which must be uh, uh, honestly held, can usually be established, which must be based on facts that you can show to be true. That can be a little bit tricky um, and must be on a matter of public interest. And we have some pretty wacko case law um, uh, about what is and isn't uh, public interest, in my uh, view, a couple of uh, pretty wacko cases. Um, there's also the um, most important defence of the publication on a matter of public interest. This is a common law, judge-made defence, available since 1999 in the UK, available under Irish uh, common law since 2003. In that period, we have had not one case that has been fully fought and thought, teased through in the courts on the public interest defence. We simply don't have enough cases and uh, going through our courts. Now, not that I'm encouraging more to go through our courts, but we don't have that body of case law teasing out the implications of the public interest uh, defence. In my view, the development of the public interest defence was the most significant uh, defamation uh, 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 development in our law over the last 20 years because it provides a defence to media outlets where even if they can't prove that the story is absolutely correct and accurate, they can show that they published it in good faith on a matter of public interest and did the best they could in terms of investigations. But unfortunately, we don't have any, because of this rush to settle cases, because it's so expensive to litigate, we haven't teased the implications of this through. In the UK, they have a vast body of, um, of law. Um, so we've established now that most pay paying plaintiffs are paid off, if there's even a whiff of legitimacy about their uh, claim, simply to cut media organisations' losses. What litigation goes ahead is the sport of kings, and it's ma uh, mainly engaged in only by the few who can afford it or whose lawyers are willing to stake their shirts on um, uh, and carry the can uh, for the plaintiff. I'd point out that no legal aid is available for um, uh, um, defamation cases. And this does promote a culture of... Um, uh, opportunism for individuals who have the wherewithal to threaten litigation cases. In the US, we have a different um, mechanism, whereby, and I'm sure Todd will, will, uh, may, may, may well be referring to this. In the US since 1964, following a case called Sullivan against New York Times, there is a distinction made about the level of protection afforded to public figures and the level of protection afforded, afforded to otherwise private citizens. Uh, we don't have any such uh, 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 distinction under our law, and I think we could usefully introduce it. In the UK, we have a test of serious harm that was introduced in 2013, <coughs> whereby if serious harm has been caused to an individual, if they can show they've suffered serious harm, not just minor irritation or some embarrassment, um, then 
that then they can go ahead and claim. Now, that is being teased out through the courts, but we have no serious harm tests in, in Ireland. I think that could usefully be introduced. We have very little case law to assess damages. More, more, very recently, we had a situation where an individual um, who was identified, misidentified as a rogue solicitor, in fact, he was a very law-abiding and respectable solicitor, one uh, photograph went, went up of him. It, of course, it was very embarrassing, very difficult. It was defamatory. However, the High Court said that the baseline for assessing his damages should be €200,000 and awarded him €140,000. The uh, Court of Appeal found that no, the baseline should have been €60,000 and reduced his award to €36,000. You can bet that it cost a hell of a lot more than €140,000 to get to the point where that had been teased out through the courts, a contraindication in itself for the media organisations involved to pushing these points. In theory, there's no distinction made between online and offline defamation. Um, but I think very interestingly, recently, what happens is that because the impecunious nature of most bloggers and people who are making Facebook posts and blogging, it's simply not worth suing them. It's only when it gets into the mainstream media and think people think there's some money to be got out of it um, that, um, that, 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 that claims are brought. That is the only difference. There is no difference in the law applicable to both forms of publication. The internet not only is a source of the fake news that horrifies us and... and, 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 and misinforms our, 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 our minds and can give rise to terrible attitudes and opinions. It is also the forum in which in, individuals have recently in this country risked making significant disclosures about sexual harassment and bullying in the workplace in various areas that could not be brought out in the mainstream media initially. Unless the individual is prepared to risk it online, then the whole story gathers momentum, and then it reaches a point. Why are we pushing important social and political stories into the relative obscurity of online blogs instead of allowing them to be brought out in, um, in, in, in the mainstream media? Um, I had another point about uh, demographics. I see some of my former colleagues from RT here, so you'll be very pleased to hear me say that uh, the market demographics are such that it is almost impossible for mainstream media, apart from the state-subsidised RTE, to allocate sufficient resources to in-depth journalism and investigative journalism. And this should not be the case, but it is the case. It's a market reality. As a result, you are on occasion going to get well-researched stories, but there won't be, as Fionn said, just that extra, um, uh, extra information, piece of information that was needed. More importantly, there won't be the money or the time to go looking for it. So we really need to look at, is freedom of expression, is investigative journalism being best um, uh, served by our existing uh, um, uh, model? In summary, a comprehensive defamation law, both in theory and practice, um, achieves that crucial balance between freedom of expression and protection of reputation. Um, is going to require steps of political bravery. It's going to require... Uh, legislators who are willing to risk exposing themselves and their colleagues to much greater accountability um, and, 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 and public scrutiny, but that they were prepared to risk that in the interests of ensuring adequate and comprehensive levels of freedom of expression in the public interest. Thank you. Thank I know that Fionnan started by mentioning Halloween. Uh, we've just had a mention of Christmas. 
in the sense of will legislators vote to change the law to make it more difficult for them to sue? It's a bit like turkeys voting for Christmas. It's not going to happen. Um, I'm going to talk about four challenges that uh, freedom of expression uh, faces uh, in the 21st century and briefly mention some of the law reform and practical social changes that could help address those challenges and support freedom of expression in their face. And the first challenge is simply plain old-fashioned censorship. It is the stuff that we've been hearing about from Fionan, from Andrea already. It is uh, the means by which state, the state can restrict your speech or can create laws that allow other people to sue you to restrict your speech. So whether there are state bans on speech or whether there are state laws like defamation that allow for um, defamation actions and high jury awards, uh, that is plain old-fashioned censorship. Uh, and that is uh, an evergreen challenge to freedom of expression. The US Supreme Court, um, after 140 years of doing nothing about the First Amendment, um, about 100 years ago, uh, started to give teeth to the First Amendment and has shown how a proper appreciation of freedom of expression can trench upon these state censorship rules. Um, and this is something the Irish Supreme Court is beginning to do. In the last 10, 15 years, we've had a number of cases where the Supreme Court has begun to give teeth to our freedom of expression protections. Uh, I agree with Fionnan uh, when he quotes my colleague Neville Cox and um, uh, McCullough, Owen McCullough. I should, forgetting the name Owen, that's terrible, um, where, where they say that the um, uh, current constitutional protections aren't very strong when they're compared with the US ones, but they're getting better. The second challenge that free speech faces uh, at the beginning of the 21st century is posed by the bad guys in Funan's analysis, or the potential bad guys at any rate, the uh, American online social media platforms, the people who um, will ultimately replace the Catholic Church as, first of all, the people that we all agree with, and then ultimately the, the people that we're going to disagree with. Um, and in, uh, in the meantime, the people who will get the politicians to vote for Christmas uh, and to change the defamation laws accordingly. Those large social media platforms are bigger than most states. Um, and if we con conceive of a constitution and constitutional protections of freedom of expression as limits upon state action, then when the social media platforms also act as censors, they too should be made subject to the protections for freedom of expression that we are beginning to develop in the context of plain old-fashioned censorship. If we see plain old-fashioned censorship by the state, then when we see the same thing happening when Twitter, when Twitter blocks a hashtag, when Facebook uh, takes you off because you've put up a photograph of, of breastfeeding, if Instagram uh, takes you down because it disagrees with your art project, if Google decides... Um, that uh, a movie shouldn't be published on YouTube in, um, in the Middle East. Uh, these are decisions taken by the platforms that are exactly the same as censorship in the state and should be met with the same tools. Um, and in this respect, the German and Irish Supreme Courts, which allow the constitutions to be 
relied upon directly as against third parties and private, and private parties um, are beginning to show the way. So the second challenge is when you've got big actors that are as powerful as states and whose actions can potentially be as restrictive as states. The third challenge is when states be, uh, become creative in their censorship. It is one thing to have a law that says thou shalt not publish X and then uh, for you to be punished if you publish X. But what we see now is much greater creativity in censorship. Uh, taking advantage of the vast online potential and using old-fashioned conjuring distraction. Look over here, look over here, look over here. If you've got 240 million state employees in China all tweeting on Weibo how wonderful the great leader is, that's 240 million look over here's, that drowns um, uh, any potential criticism that there might have been of his five-hour speech to the um, State Congress last week. I promise you I'm not going to speak for five hours. Four hours and 59 minutes and 59 seconds. Uh, and please, um, I hope that my 240 million admirers on Twitter um, will distract from your criticisms of me going on for that long. <coughs> and that's what the criticisms were, simply of the length, not of the substance, but nevertheless, the state drowned it out. Um, it, it, it is something that is being um, developed by China and Russia. In China, we no longer have red brigades. We now have web brigades that are um, drowning out uh, legitimate speech. So if the Great Firewall of China doesn't prevent it from coming in, if the state censor doesn't nab you, um, if Weibo doesn't take you down, well then this giant tidal wave of distraction will censor you uh, as well. Um, and sometimes even more effectively. This kind of propaganda and distraction requires both the active connivance of the state and the passive complicity of the citizen. Um, and when it comes to the active connivance of the state, we need the application of traditional free speech norms again to prevent that from happening. We might be able to do this um, in, in Western democracies. It's too late in China and Russia, but at least we can try to deploy traditional speech values um, to restrict this from happening. We also need to look at the practicalities of ensuring that we know when we're being distracted like this. It's very good. It's been very effective. Um, we have been fooled. Fool me once, more fool you. Fool me twice, more fool me. We know it's happening. We now know what's going on behind the curtain. We now know when the distraction is happening over here, something important is over there and we should look over there. So we should learn from that experience um, and uh, we should, institutions like this, events like tonight, should educate so that we can learn from that experience. The fourth challenge... Um, uh, is also an online challenge and it's posed not by state actors not by um, uh, and, their, and their propaganda, not by platforms and their ability to act like states online but by the torrent of fake news, the torrent of hate speech from the armies of bots, from the armies of uh, trolls that are out there on the online platform. 
Now, something must be done. I'm not going to stand here and argue that uh, um, uh, the unlimited discussion online is a good thing. I think that online discussion in principle is a good thing, and at the moment we have our balance wrong. We don't allow enough discussion offline. We permit too much discussion online. We need to recalibrate. We need to take the fact that it is possible for public interest stories, like the stories that Andrea was referring to, uh, to develop online. They need to be able to come into the real world without running into the problems that Fianon was uh, referring to. But on the other hand, lines are being crossed online. Um, and one of the responsibilities there is on the platforms. And if we restrict, if we regulate the platforms because of the censorship they directly enact upon us, we should likewise rely on traditional free speech um, uh, concerns to regulate um, what they also allow. Their inaction is just as serious as their action. Their actions in banning people and their inaction in allowing the torrents of hate speech um, and um, uh, fake news. For example, Germany already has legislation making um, platforms responsible for the illegal content that sloshes through them. Um, those platforms that were uh, being um, interrogated um, on Capitol Hill last week um, have already agreed a code of conduct about those kinds of issues with the European Union um, and the European Commission last month published uh, supporting um, uh, supporting documents to enforce that code of conduct. Things can be done. Um, we just need the will to get it right. We shouldn't go too far, uh, but we should be prepared at least to try. It is very important where we face significant challenges to freedom of expression, where technology enhances those challenges, that we do our best to reinforce and reassert traditional speech values. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. If you'll permit an opening note on the importance of format in communication, apropos the nine-minute limit, I don't know how many of you follow American basketball. Um, if I were LeBron James, I could score 15 points in nine minutes, but I'm not, so I will do the best I can. Uh, I want to open with a philosophical, historical remark uh, um, b before I get to current particulars. The ideal of a democracy informed by freedom of speech is essentially a late 18th, early 19th century idea um, where the people who are to govern themselves are construed to be more or less a unified body or a, un a body that literally or figuratively meets, literally or figuratively assembles 
And it, it, the principle that followed, or the spirit of the enterprise, is you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Informed citizens, Thomas Jefferson, better to have newspapers without a government, government without newspapers, and so on and so on. Um, this line of argument about the centrality of a public sphere is uh, best, and I think most um, both pithily and aptly uh, 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 expressed in the middle of the 19th century by John Stuart Mill. And uh, with his defense of um, of, of freedom of speech for a variety of reasons. And so we have a philosophical platform in democracies or whatever we are in now, para-democracies, semi-democracies, um, we have both a faith that there is a collective public that can be understood as a sphere, uh, and also a faith in multiplicity, that multiplicity is automatically the corrective to, uh, to bias or to skew. Uh, one of the interesting corporate and, and technological developments that made possible the newspaper as an embodiment of these ideals was the invention of a form of daily newspaper in the 1830s in many of the countries we're talking about, which became, the newspaper itself became an aggregator. Uh, we have news, we have, we have shipping news for people who are in the business of shipping goods or receiving them. Uh, we have uh, foreign news for people who follow that. We have local news for people who want to follow that. And then eventually, as the commercial press became more successful, the aggregators started taking in people who were not even necessarily interested in news, but they were interested in something that the newspaper had on offer. So that might be sport. It might be a crossword puzzle. It might be cartoons. It might be contests and also varieties of news. And that proved to be a brilliant platform, a brilliant um, business model, as we say today, that enabled newspapers to thrive until the developments of recent years, and they are quite recent, destroyed the aggregator. Because you no longer needed to turn to the newspaper to... Uh, for cartoons or for sports, or for that matter, I didn't mention classified advertising. If you needed to find an apartment to rent or sell a car or buy a car, you also needed newspapers for that. Well, that blew up with the Internet. This wasn't anybody's doing except maybe Craig Newmark, who discovered that he could list a whole lot of stuff and single-handedly destroy the need for classified ads. So the upshot of many forces, which I don't have time to review... Uh, is that the world of, of the, the, the ostensible public sphere has, uh, has fractured into a world of sphericules. Um, this is true of civil society as a whole and is not only true of media, but there's, I think, a positive feedback loop that translates uh, the fracturing of one into the fracturing of the other and so on. And while I won't go on at length about what television news has become in the United States, cable news, suffice to say that uh, fake news, as it's been called, is now a propaganda channel, or it exists in the form of several propaganda channels that are pumped into virtually everyone's living room in America. Um, figures like Rupert Murdoch, you've heard of him, 
Robert Mercer, less known, but a comer, billionaire, uh, backer of Breitbart News, without whom Donald Trump would not be president, and Steve Bannon would not be a household word. They and their, their wannabes have devised a formula under the current dispensation, which enables them to, fast, to pander to a false populism, that they present themselves as tribunes of the people. So with the collapse of the business model, uh, what's left, at least in America, of newspapers? We have a couple of reasonably stable major newspapers at the moment. One owes its uh, longevity to a family, uh, the Sulzberger family who own the New York Times, who are at least not yet ready to break it up and sell off the pieces for bigger profits. And as the Washington Post, which had the same sort of family model, was foundering, there arrived the billionaire on the white horse, Mr. Bezos of Amazon, to buy the paper and at least for now to have sustained it as an extremely serious newspaper. Right now, those models, the family model and the tycoon model, are emerging as the only alternatives to Rupert Murdoch. And now I'm looking forward, I'm exaggerating a bit, but not much. Meantime, the circulation of disinformation, defamation, and incitement to hate crimes, including not least the intrusions of specialists in disinformation from outside the United States. Obviously, I'm speaking about Russia, about which we're learning more every day. All these are forces that have emerged as central to the new media ecology. So now I want to come down from my para-historical philosophical course and talk a bit about social media and what's going on now. Um, what we're learning through increasing study, and by the way, the study is being done by outsiders because Facebook is closed to outside researchers. But we are learning a great deal about their operations. What we're learning in brief is that inside Facebook, which has a constituency of 2 billion, how many in this room? Oh, my goodness, we are outliers. Um, inside Facebook, where people share little dog pictures, um, is a... F <laughs> is, it, it's okay. I like dogs. Uh, inside Facebook is a fake book. Inside Facebook is a fake book. It's a repository of deception. And this deception is not a bug. It is a feature of the system. It, is, it follows from the social media business model, which uh, dictates that tremendous amounts of money can be made by, getting, by garnering clicks. So what to do about it is the question of the hour. I just want to say a few things. Um, as we've already heard, Europeans have their own ideas, thank God. They make Facebook unhappy. It ought not to be surprising that a global medium, very proud of being everywhere, is now running into global impediments. So the European Union has taken some actions, ordering Facebook, Twitter, and other social media to take down hate speech. Uh, wasn't working very well. We've just heard from Professor O'Dell about a very recent uh, contribution by German law to address um, the problem of... Uh, of uh, Posts that violate Germany's criminal code, 
which ban incitement to hatred, crime, spread of symbols belonging to unconstituted groups, and so on. Um, the United Kingdom, to speak of what we once called Europe, um, in, in there, Facebook has not responded to recent charges that foreign intervention analogous to what happened in the United States also tilted the Brexit vote. I want to say a few words about freedom of speech in the American context. Ooh, there are going to be very few words. Um, okay, I'll take it, I'll, I'll state a conclusion without being able to make the case that Facebook itself, the, the company management, cannot be relied upon to uh, resolve a problem of serving as fake book. Um, it is uh, not going to be serious about it. We just learned, for example, this week that while they said they were doubling Facebook, doubling the number of employees they'd have working to scrub posts um, to inspect online content by the end of the next year, they just pointed out in a conference call with investors that many of the new workers are not likely to be full-time employees, but largely will be third-party uh, part-time uh, contractors. Um, anytime anybody speaks of government action in the United States, journalists get very nervous, deservedly. Uh, the question of government subsidy of any sort for the, for the informational function, which is the lifeblood of democracy, gets them extremely nervous. You talk about when you talk about the various Scandinavian schemes for uh, subsidizing newspapers, um, you might as well be proposing uh, that we welcome uh, the Chinese Communist Party to do the regulation. Um, should there be in the U.S. some sort of centrally appointed regulatory boards? I don't know. I don't know how those are working out. It's an interesting question. Um, should there be some sort of council of elders established? in the U.S. to serve staggered terms in order to minimize political rigging? I don't know. Uh, it's, it's a notion worth talking about and debating. Um, but what happens when one government, when the present government appoints Steve Bannon, uh, the arc uh, aggregator of uh, racist and nativist uh, speech, to be a member of that board? Um, my colleague Tim Wu at the Columbia Journalism School has proposed uh, converting Facebook into a public benefit or nonprofit company. Great idea, uh, obviously a non-starter in today's political um, context. So just in conclusion, uh, the, the, the 19th century notion of automatic enlightenment through publication and in its present-day transmogrification is a notion that automatic enlightenment would come through clicks was a pipe dream. And what's more plausible today is a pipe nightmare. It's no longer a decent option for democracy, even a would-be democracy, to stand by mumbling incantations uh, or quoting Thomas Jefferson, um, genuflecting to laissez-faire while the institutions of reason are shaking. Thanks. Thank you.